I invite you to turn over with me now in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Last week, it was great to have Aaron Browning from Northwest Bible Church down with us for a Sunday. His sermon on the letter of Philemon was a great blessing. And today, we get to return to the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians, where, if you remember, Paul does what he often does at the end of of his letters to churches. Paul begins to give several short commands about a bunch of different things. And so far, we've looked at the first few of those commands. In one sermon, we looked at the story, the short story of Yodia and Syntyche, and Paul's call to these women to agree in the Lord. Then in our last sermon, we focused on just one verse, Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This morning, we're going to look at the next two major calls in the passage. They're found in Philippians 4, verses 5 and 6. So let's let's read them and see if you can spot them. Philippians 4, 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, as we read the verses, could you spot the two main calls in the text? Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That's the first one. Second one. Don't be anxious about anything, that's half of it, but let your requests be made known to God. That's the second half. Now, before we dig a little deeper, I want to point out a couple more things. Did you notice that both of those calls are about making things known? Did you see that similarity? Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, and then let your requests be made known to God. And the second thing, did you notice there's one line in between the two calls? Did you, did you pay attention to what the middle line said? <clears throat> Let your reasonableness be known to everybody. The Lord is at hand or near. Don't be anxious about anything. I want you to think about that middle line. Okay, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. How does that middle line connect to the lines around it? We're going to be thinking about that as we go along today. But for now, let's focus in on that first call. And I apologize for my voice. I have to clear my throat a lot today for some reason. But I'm going to focus in on that first call, Philippians 4, verse 5. In my opinion, this verse is the forgotten verse in this section. Okay, we know verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. We know verse 6, don't be anxious about anything. Maybe you know verse 8, whatever's good, true, lovely, think about these things. Okay, we don't know, I don't think, verse 5 very well. And even if we do know it a little bit, I doubt we've thought about it nearly as much as these other things. So I want to change that today. I want to think hard about verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Okay, I want to start 
with what's clear and easy to grasp in that verse. Okay, one, that's a command. Right? This is not an option. And that command is to Christians about what we should be known for by everyone else. Perhaps especially, in Paul's mind, non-Christians. Okay, so Paul wanted all Christians to be known for this specific character trait. Reasonableness. <clears throat> Are you known for that? Is that something you want to be known for? Okay? Paul wanted his friends in Philippi to be known for this. It brings up a good question for us to think about. What do we want to be known for? Especially by non-Christians. What would you put on your list? Okay? Would what do you got? Believer. Believer, you want to be known for your faith? Okay. Do you want to be known for reasonableness? <laughs> would that have been on your on your list? Okay. You might be thinking, until today, I did not know that that was a word. Reasonableness. Okay? I don't know if you've ever said it. I've been working at saying it <laughs> properly. Okay. What exactly does that mean? That is the hardest thing to explain in this verse. I think this might be why we don't know this verse that well, because it's not entirely clear what that means. But to grasp that line, you have to grasp that one word. Okay? Yeah, but it, it is difficult. And how, and how do I know that it's difficult? You just need to look at the many different translations of that word. <clears throat> yeah, I'm going to show you many of them. Just, to, just so you can see it, okay? There's a lot of different ways that that word is taken. Okay, so here we got our text. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Uh, put the Spanish one as well, amabilidad, okay, which I think has primarily to do with kindness, amable. Okay? But then I want to look at different translations, okay? This CSB, let your graciousness be known to everyone. NIV, <clears throat> let your gentleness be known to everyone. NLT, let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Okay. Then I want to go back to some older English translations as well. Okay, so the King James, let your moderation be known to all men, which I, I think would communicate something like even keelness. That's a word. Okay. That ASV, let your forbearance be known unto all men. Okay, now my point <clears throat> isn't to argue for one of these over another or to say any of them is actually far off, it's just to point out. This word has a wide range of meaning. And there's no single English word that corresponds to it. Okay, so that captures it fully. Okay, so what I want to do to try to get our minds beyond just looking at these translations, get our minds on this, is I want to look at a couple other texts where the word is used and to look at those. And then I want to think about a couple illustrations of what this might look like in real life. I think it would help us grasp this. Okay, just, so to start with, this, this word is not common in the, New, in the New Testament. It's just a handful of times. And so I've just picked three of the places where the word is used. And I'm going to show us the text on the screen. 
But I don't want you to just look at the word itself. I want you to look at the context. I want you to look especially at the words right around the word that we're trying to figure out. Okay? So the first one's in a well-known passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's in the list of pastoral qualifications, the things that are absolutely essential for every pastor. Okay, so this is in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Therefore, an overseer or pastor must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, and it goes on. That same qualification, gentle, <clears throat> is in the other list of pastoral qualifications, too, in the book of Titus. Okay? It's translated here, gentle. But did you notice the contrasting words around? Pastors cannot be violent or quarrelsome. They need to be gentle. To be qualified, a pastor must be known for this. They need to be the kind of men who do not pick fights, who do not respond to stress with violence or anger, but who are instead marked by gentleness. All right, for a second text, look at another list. This one, though, is from the book of James. It's a list of what true wisdom produces in someone's life. So James chapter 3. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere. And what does wisdom from above produce? produces people who are peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Okay. So here, the virtue is closely connected to being peace-loving and teachable, to being the kind of person who is approachable, willing to yield. Okay. For one more text uh, from Peter, he, this is actually in a challenge from Peter to his Christian friends who happened to be slaves. It says, slaves, in reverent fear of God, <clears throat> submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but notice the contrast, but also to those who are harsh. Now, if you were a slave at the time, you would have, it would have been rough, but you would have hoped to have a good and considerate master. But sadly, many were harsh, cruel, unreasonable. Okay, so to sum things up a bit, okay, what can we say about this key word? It has to do with things like being gentle, reasonable, teachable, approachable, willing to yield, and it is the opposite of being harsh, stubborn, unapproachable, 
unreasonable, unteachable, unwilling to yield. Okay, in this forgotten verse in Philippians, Paul calls all of us to this. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone around you. Now, what might that look like in real life? I want to think of a a few scenarios to help us. I want to think first of what it might look like to have that in personal conflict. Because after all, Paul just addressed Yodia and Syntyche in the preceding verses. Two women that he loved a lot who were at odds with each other. What would it look like for someone to demonstrate this virtue in the middle of a conflict with someone else? It would be for them to be approachable, gentle rather than harsh, willing to listen instead of being stubborn, willing to yield wherever possible instead of being the kind of person who always must dig in their heels. Have you ever had a conflict with someone else who was like that? who was approachable, gentle with you, willing to listen to you, willing to yield wherever possible? Question, if you've had a conflict with someone who was like that, how long did the conflict last? Probably not very long. And also, we can think, how did their gentleness affect you? Like, let's say you came into that hot and bothered, ready for, you know, a fight or something. And they responded with that kind of gentleness back to you. How did it make you feel? What did it do to you? It might have felt like you were having, like, burning coals put on your your head. (laughs) You might have been feeling a little ashamed. Okay. All right. Second scenario. I want to think about what this might look like in suffering. After all, Paul's writing to people who were suffering for Jesus. That's throughout the letter. What would this virtue look like in the middle of suffering? I think it would, it would be to not insist on your own way or your own rights. To not seek vengeance. It'd be to take instead the hard path of Jesus who endured suffering with Graciousness, patience, forbearance, with a simple trust in his heavenly Father. Or what about, what would this look like to have reasonableness, gentleness, this this idea in the face of correction? After all, Paul's done a a a good bit of correcting in the letter. So I think about this. I want to talk especially to kids and teens, but to all of us. Okay. How do you respond when you're being corrected? With harshness? By insisting you're right? By refusing to listen? By losing your cool? I know I've done all those things in my life. Those are very normal responses to correction. <clears throat> in fact, sometimes 
as parents who might have to give correction, we might expect those kind of responses. Because we know that's what we often do. How different would it be to respond to correction with gentleness? A willingness to listen, learn, and wherever you can, yield. In our day, sadly, those things we are talking about are often viewed as signs of weakness in people. That's not how it is in the Bible. This response takes real strength. It does not take strength to be cruel or to be quick-tempered. That is not a sign of strength. It It does not take strength to be unreasonable or unapproachable. It takes real strength to be gentle, teachable, calm, kind, under pressure, when you're being confronted, when you're in conflict, when you're suffering. That's what takes real strength. And this virtue, as I've been thinking about it, was without a doubt seen most vividly in whom? In Jesus, right? You think of Jesus? He was certainly not afraid to speak truth, hard truth, stand up against hypocrites, stand up for vulnerable people. He was strong and courageous every day. But Jesus was also the most gentle and approachable man who has ever lived. He was the most willing to suffer, to not insist on his own rights, the most willing to forbear, they like to put up with people, and not take revenge. And praise Jesus that he lived this out and that he died for our many failures to do this. Because you think about this, you might think of many situations where this has not marked you out. Jesus died for our failings. He lived the way we didn't, and he died for our failings. And we can praise him for this. But we also need to remember we've been called to follow in his footsteps, to put on this virtue in our lives. And for that, we need his help, grace, and his presence with us. And I think it's interesting that in the very next line in the text, what does Paul point us to? Look at verse 5 again, Philippians 4, verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Paul points us to the nearness of Jesus. Jesus is at hand. Now, when Paul says that, what do you think he's trying to emphasize? Like, is, is he highlighting that Jesus is coming back soon, like the Lord is near, so let your reasonableness be known to everybody? Or is he highlighting that the Lord is present now with us? The Lord is near. Okay, I'm just going to go with a both and here. Both of those things are true and relevant, and I want to think about it. Okay, one example. Okay, consider again a scenario where there's personal conflict between two brothers or sisters in the Lord. And then think about the nearness of Jesus and how it might shape the conflict if you actually remembered the nearness of Jesus. Okay, so what if you could both remember in that conflict that Jesus is coming soon? That both you and your brother 
will stand before Jesus soon and talk to him about things like how you handled this conflict. How might that affect your attitude toward your brother or sister? Or what if, what if you could both remember in that conflict that the Lord is already here with you? Seeing the conflict, sensing what's in your heart. Or what if you could both remember that the Lord is at your side, ready to give you strength. Strength to be gentle, calm, considerate, patient. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Now we come to the second call in the text, which we probably know better than this one. Verse 6. And do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, as we get into this, <clears throat> I think it's worth asking ourselves, am I anxious about anything this morning? Did you come here today anxious about anything? I wouldn't be surprised if some of us are anxious or if many Others of us are struggling and fighting not to be. Anxiety or worry is something we all struggle with, and some of us more than others. <clears throat> Anxiety is something Jesus addressed clearly and at length in the Sermon on the Mount. We read that. Tyler read that for us earlier. And these are, I think, Paul's clearest words about anxiety and what to do with it in, in his writings. In both Jesus and Paul, the call to us is don't worry. Paul says here, don't be anxious about anything. And it's hard not to notice how comprehensive that is. That reminds us of verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. It's so comprehensive. Don't be anxious about anything. Okay, now I want to start with a clarification about this, and I want to think about this. Okay, what this means. Okay, I want to clarify first, Paul was not saying we should not care about anything. Now, that may seem obvious, but I, I want to mention that because earlier in the letter, Paul actually uses the same word for anxious in his praise of Timothy. I don't know if you've ever would have noticed this, but earlier he says to Timothy, or about Timothy, I have nobody like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for you. It's interesting that the word concerned in that text is the same word as the word anxious in this text. Paul knew that Timothy would be genuinely concerned for them. He would be anxious, if you will, in a good way. This is just to say that it's not bad to care about people or be concerned about people or situations or the things of God. But in both the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of Paul, there's a kind of concern that isn't good. And we call that typically anxiety or worry. Now, I think we already know the difference between Caring about someone or something in a good way and worrying about that same someone or same thing. 
But I, I still want to think about that a little bit. Okay. What's the difference between caring about something and worrying about it? What are the signs or marks of worry or anxiety? This is something we all know from experience. Okay, worry is often connected to things like being constantly distracted or stressed to repeatedly mulling over what-if scenarios in our minds. Endless cycle of that. Or to never really being at rest in your heart. Worry is often connected to thinking either that we are in control and everything depends on us, or that no one is in control and everything depends on nothing. Biblically, <clears throat> worry is often connected to fear, or especially to a lack of trust in God. For Christians, worry is often connected to forgetfulness. Things that we saw clearly, boldly confessed in times of peace, we struggle to remember in our anxious moments. We can easily forget that God is in control. All too quickly we start to feel God has left us or forgotten us, or we start to doubt whether God has the power or desire to help us. When Jesus or Paul spoke about anxiety, that was the kind of thing on their minds. But again, I don't think our problem is we don't know what worry is. That is I, I do not think that's anybody's problem in here. I don't know what worry is. That's not a problem. We know too well what it is to worry. Understanding the command is not the problem. Our problem is it's really hard to obey this command. Do not be anxious about anything. We know what it's saying. How do we do that? Why? What, how does this make sense? And I want to help us think through two questions. Why shouldn't we worry about anything? And two, what should we do instead? Why shouldn't we worry? I want to point again. Now, there's a lot of answers. If, I, if, we, if we were talking about the Sermon on the Mount text, we'd have a lot of other answers that are really good. I just want to stay in our text. Why shouldn't you worry? In this text, Philippians, I want to point you to the immediately preceding line. The Lord is near you. Don't worry. We shouldn't worry about anything because Jesus is near us. Do you believe that he's near you in your troubles? If you believe that, then I'd ask, what do you know about Jesus that might be relevant to your anxiousness? Okay, here's a couple things that came to my mind. Jesus is strong. Strong enough to handle Whatever you're anxious about, he's near and he's strong. Or he's near and he's wise. You might not know what to do. That's why you're anxious. Jesus is near you and he's wise enough to know what's best. He's good. No matter how bad this is, He's good. 
He's near you. And he always cares. <clears throat> Sometimes in worry, we isolate ourselves. We live in our minds. We think we're all alone. You're not alone in any trouble. The Lord is near. He sees and he cares. If those things are true, you don't need to worry about anything. And then to the second question, what should we do instead of worry? Because this is not just a negative command. Paul does not just say, don't be anxious. That's only half of what he says about this. Don't be anxious. Instead, do this. What should we do instead of worry? <clears throat> or to put that another way, what, we should, what should we do with our anxieties and our worries when they come and plague us and fill up our hearts and minds? What's Paul's counsel? <clears throat> Verse 6, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. As we think about that counsel, it's been helpful to me to remember that the people who got the letter had a lot they could have been anxious about. Okay, this church that he's writing to was particularly poor. They're known for that in the New Testament. Many of us struggle with anxiety because of money. This church was known for poverty. For another thing, it was clear they were living in a much more hostile environment than we are. For another, we know there was some degree of conflict inside the church. Be something to worry about. Don't forget one of their own leaders, Epaphroditus, nearly died recently trying to help Paul out. And then, to add to that, Paul, the guy who planted the church, could be condemned to death at any moment. There was a lot they could be anxious about. And what's Paul's counsel to his friends? <clears throat> Don't be anxious about any of those things. Turn all of them over to the Lord in prayer. Paul's counsel was to talk to God about each thing they were anxious about. Tell God everything that was weighing heavy on their hearts. Lay them out and lay them down one by one to the Lord in prayer. Now look back at the verse. I want to zoom in on, on two things in, the, in verse 6. Notice how Paul adds in the middle. With thanksgiving. That, that phrase stands out. Paul's counsel is not just to let God know about our needs. It's also to pray with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for what? Paul doesn't say. Okay, perhaps it would be helpful to think in it, through this in your own life. Even in your most anxious moments, maybe this week, don't you have much to be thankful for? Like what? What can you still thank God for, even in your anxious moments? I'm just going to let you think about that on your own, because I know you know a lot of the answers to that. But I'll just say this, that one of the greatest antidotes to anxiety is to remember and rehearse the works of God. When we're anxious, 
we often struggle to get our minds on anything other than the problem or potential problem. Thankfulness is one of the greatest antidotes to anxiety. And then notice how Paul says, let your requests be made known to God. Do that instead of being anxious. Now, on the one hand, we might say, but God already knows. He knows all the things I would say. Does he? Yes, he does. But he wants to hear them. He wants to hear you say them. Why? I mean, Jesus says it. Your father knows all these needs before you ask him. So why does he want you to say them to him? One is because God actually cares about you. He wants to hear from you. I, I read a nice one-liner this week, because sometimes we think, but it's not that big of a deal when I really think about it. Well, nice one-liner. If it matters to you, it matters to God. But I also want to suggest that laying your anxieties out, expressing them one by one, is part of how God helps you through them. So don't just pray, Lord, help me with my anxiety. That's fine, of course. It's not bad. But Paul's counsel is to be more specific than that. Let your requests be made known to God. You might say, well, that would take me a long time to do that because I've got so many things to be anxious about. You probably do. And it probably would take some time. And that is exactly why we need to hear this. We need to take time to think. Perhaps even to write down the things that are weighing heavy on our hearts. And then we need to sit before the Lord and talk to him about each thing. Lay those burdens out and lay them down. And you know what's amazing? Is that God is willing to sit there with you and listen for as long as it takes. He never gets tired of listening to you. And so I just want to think, think about when is the last time You've sat before the Lord for a good while and talked one by one through the burdens you're carrying, thanking the Lord for what he's already done, expressing to him what's heavy on your heart, and just asking him to carry for you what you know is too hard for you to bear. This is what Paul tells us to do with our anxieties. It's what we're supposed to do to God. Let our requests be made known to God. But that's not where Paul ends the text. I'm going to end with this. Paul ends with the promise of what God will do to us when we do this to God. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is God's promise to you that as we continue to cast our cares on him, God's peace will guard our hearts 
and our minds in Christ. And to close, I just I want to end in that, in that verse, thinking about three parts of that promise. One, think about what Paul says about the peace of God. What is the peace of God that Paul's talking about? This is a kind of supernatural peace, okay? A rest that cannot be explained or achieved on our own. It's a kind of peace that comes from God as a gift to us, a kind that Paul says passes, surpasses all human understanding. And I'd add that this is the kind of peace that God has. What I mean by that is God's at perfect peace all the time. God's never anxious. You know that about God? When's the last time God worried? When's the last time? When's the last time God was overwhelmed? God is fully satisfied, always at perfect peace. He never wrings his hands over anything. We're the ones who get overwhelmed, whose hearts grow restless. And what we need in those moments is a kind of peace beyond our grasp. We need God's peace, and God promises to give it to us as we keep turning our requests over to God. God promises to give us this. Second, I want to think about the word guard. Peace of God will guard your heart. That's a rare word in the New Testament. I become more convinced Paul uses it in Philippians because the city of Philippi was constantly guarded by the Roman military. I think that makes a lot of sense. Philippi was a Roman colony. It's well known. There was a Roman garrison stationed there. Think of a Roman military division in the city to preserve the peace, always guarding the city. Okay. Paul points us, though, instead to the promise that God's peace will guard us. You would have felt safe in that city. You're safer if God's peace is guarding you. And then lastly, I want to consider the final phrase, in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. This is a reminder that the Philippians weren't simply in Philippi. As safe as that city might have been, they were in Christ Jesus. We can say we are in America, which means we're safe in comparison with most people on earth. But that's not where our security lies. It's in being in Christ. This is also a reminder that the promise of this text is for those who've been united to Christ. If you don't know Christ, if you're not connected to Christ, your greatest need is to be united to Christ, to be brought first into peace with God, which comes through trusting Jesus Christ. It's only through his blood shed for us that we're brought into peace with God. But for those of us who are already in Christ, this promise is for you. The promise of God's peace is specifically for you and to you. So as your anxious thoughts return to your heart and perhaps even flood your mind this week, what should you do? Turn those anxieties over to God. Cast your burdens on the Lord. Name them. Let, lay them out. Lay them down. With thankfulness in your heart, let your requests be made known to God. And as you do that, you can be assured of this. God has both 
the ability, and the desire to give you his peace. And God's peace has the power to guard your heart and your mind in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this clear word about gentleness and anxiety. Two things we needed to hear about today. Lord, I pray that you'll do your work through your word, that we might be known to all men and women as people who are gentle and reasonable. And I pray this week that as soon as our anxious thoughts return, maybe right as we leave today, that you'll remind us to turn those over to you, to cast our burdens on you, and I pray you'll grant us the assurance through this word today that you care for us. Would you guard us in Christ as you promised to do? In Jesus' name, amen.